Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. For those of you new to the world of Matan, we are a dynamic, broad-based institute with intensive Beit Midrash programs and a wide array of innovative and challenging learning opportunities for women of all ages and from all backgrounds. Matan has multiple branches throughout Israel, and you can find out more about our students, faculty, and programming on Matan's website and social media platforms. On Motzei Shabbat, February 4th, Meshach 48 will be co-hosting a peek into Matan's Parsha podcast event. This will be a conversation between Dr. Yael Ziegler and myself, moderated by Devorah Katz, co-founder of Meshach 48. Join us for a great conversation and a light supper in support of Matan's podcast. The event will be taking place in Gush Etzion at Meshach 48. And you, for more information and for sign up, you can email us at podcast.matan.org.il or contact the Matan office. Our podcast series on Shemot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas into our modern lives. This week's episode has been dedicated by Sharon Hirsch and Ellen Levinson and their families in memory of their mother, Joyce Frank, Chaya Rachel Batsvi Upesia, on the occasion of her second yard site on the 4th of Shvat. She is missed by her children, grandchildren, and 26 great-grandchildren. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Vayra opens with God assuring Moshe that he will be present and help the people despite the current overload of their slave responsibilities. Moshe is sent to the people to assure them, but he isn't successful. His initial faltering confidence is not strengthened by these initial failures. This is followed by a genealogical list which details the descendants of Yaakov, but which really focuses on the Levite family tree, serving as a substantiation of Moshe and Aaron's leadership position. While the people remain currently unconvinced, the reader is informed that leadership success will eventually arise from this family. Then we meet the plague's opening act. Aharon performs a sign for Paro when he turns his staff into a snake. While the magicians can perform the same wonder, Aaron's staff then (coughs) eats theirs displaying his triumph. But even this impressive feat does not move Paro, and God has to move forward with the plague program. This week's Parsha includes the first seven plagues, Dam, Tzvardea, Kinim, Arov, which can be translated as either a mixture of wild insects or animals, Dever, which is pestilence, Shechin, boils, and Barad, which is hail. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Hashat Beit Midrash of Matan and its academic director, Dr. Yael Ziegler, the author of multiple Tanakh commentaries. Yael is also a senior lecturer at Herzog College and a returning podcast guest. Hi, Josefa. Hi, Yael. It's great to have you back here. It's nice to be back. I always like to watch your uh, responses in your face to the introduction that I write about the Parsha, <laughs> wondering how you may have introduced the Parsha differently. So that anyways, was great. I always enjoy that. Uh, it's great to have you back here. Uh, and as I said, we're really speaking about different elements in these Parshiot that contribute to our identity formation as a people. So maybe with that idea, let's... let's transition into the first thing we want to talk about today, which is the topic of water, which is a very, very fundamental part of our identity as a people. And we sort of first meet it in the land of Egypt. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it is certainly the first plague, right? So the first plague uh, strikes at the Nile. The second plague also strikes at the Nile in a sense, right? Because, of course, the Nile spews forth these hordes of putrid frogs, um, which (laughs) suggests, again, I mean, the Nile is a symbol of Egypt. So when the Nile turns into blood and then it's spewing forth these, you know, these frogs. So this seems to symbolize that, well, certainly the Nile turning to blood symbolizes Egypt's impending death. And the spewing forth of the frogs seems to suggest that Egypt is spreading uh, impurity is spreading some kind of repulsive creatures in the world, which I think is uh, an image that that kind of sticks with us. It is interesting, though, that you know not only is the Nile featured here because the Nile is so important for Egypt, but also because the Nile. It's not just, it's the symbol of Egypt's identity. It's certainly the symbol of Egypt's economic well-being, but its economic well-being also feeds its military success, its technological success, its administrative success. Um, But at the same time, the Nile becomes the opposite of Israel's identity to to a certain degree. In a well-known passage in Devarim Yud Aleph, which I think we had occasion to speak about a long time ago together, yeah, Yosefa. we did. In this passage in Devarim Yud Aleph, when God is, or when Moshe is introducing the land of Israel to the people who are standing really on the cusp of entrance into the land of Israel, he tells them that the land that you're coming to in order to possess it is not like the land of Egypt, which is interesting in its own right, because of course he's sort of preparing the people for an upcoming disappointment almost, right? Don't, you know, don't think it's going to be Egypt. It's definitely not going to be Egypt. But in what sense is Eretz Israel, is the land of Israel presented as being different than Egypt is in terms of their water source, right? So Moshe says, the land of Egypt, which you just left, that was a place, Asher Tizra et Zaracha, Vihishkita Viraglacha Kegan Hayarak. That was a place that you would plant the seeds and then you would irrigate it with your feet, right? It's not exactly clear what pulley device was activated with their feet, but we know that Egypt used these irrigation canals, which they built towards the Nile. And uh, when they would release the water into their fields, presumably they would do so by somehow pressing down with their feet. Mm -hmm. The more important point, of course, is that the source of their water is their own human labor, right? The Rashbam points this out. The source of their water is them looking downward and seeing their feet working, right? It becomes a symbol of the way in which Egypt recognizes that human uh, success comes from Ma'aseyadenu, from the work of our hands, or in this case, Ma'aseraglenu, right? Those things which we do with our legs. In contrast to that, uh, Moshe says, But that land that you're coming to, first of all, it's a land of mountains and valleys. You couldn't even build an irrigation system, even if you had a river. But more importantly, Limtar hashamayim tishdemayim. This is a land where you get water from the rains of heaven. And that's, of course, because you don't have a natural water source. You don't have a river, right? Of course, we do have, uh, you know, the Jordan, but the Jordan is not a river, right? It is also dependent upon rainwater. It's never called a Nahar in the Tanakh. It's not a river, you know, that is independent of rainwater. And in fact, when we're given the kind of maximal borders for the land of Israel, we're told, up to, but not including the Euphrates River, 
up to but not including the Egyptian River. We can spread out the land, but we can never have a river within the borders of the land of Israel. And that's because the idea of getting a water source in the land of Israel is that we should be looking upward. Limtar hashamayim tishdemayim. You will be drinking your water. You'll be getting your economic success, your survivability. You'll be getting from the heavens. And therefore, in the next Pasuk says something actually that's quite interesting because I would think that the next Pasuk would say, and therefore you will be looking towards heavens for all of your success. But it actually says the opposite. It says, therefore, it's a land that God is looking there God's eyes are on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, presumably to determine how much rain he is going to allot to the land of Israel, right? That's certainly a very important Tanakh idea that when we are uh, properly behaving in in accordance with God's mitzvot, God will give us kshamim bi'itam, the rain in the proper time. And so the very essence of the land of Israel here is being contrasted to the Nile in Egypt, the Nile which becomes the symbol of the people's own sense of their self-sufficiency. Right? This is, of course, matched by the image in Yechezkel Perak Kaftet, where Yechezkel is rebuking the paro. It doesn't matter which paro. Paro is not a proper name. It just means great house, which is a way of describing the palace of paro and eventually becomes a reference to paro himself. Uh, so Yechezkel is describing the paro who is he is swimming in his Nile, and as he swims, he says, This is my Nile. I created this Nile, which is really, I think, a wonderful image for the way that the Egyptians regarded the gift of the Nile. It was the gift of the Paro. It was a human uh, gift, and it was one that ultimately confirmed their sense that all success should be and can be attributed to human beings. You know, one thing that's coming up for me in your in your explanation of the difference between our water source versus the Egyptian water source is actually this piece about memory, because as you said, Moshe oddly opens up this description and says, it's not like Eretz Mitzrayim, which lends us to believe that similar to like when they fantasize about the food they ate in Egypt, there's something about the memory of Egypt in the consciousness of this generation of Israelites that is highly positive. And unlike, you know, we think about the plagues, we think about, you know, the suffering there, we think about the very hard experience they had there, but also this reference, like their, their other flashback to the food they may or may not have there, whether or not that was a, a, an exaggeration or not, but here they remember Egypt as being this looming, powerful, prosperous, successful society that they had to leave, right? And it really speaks to also the difficulty of what they've met in the desert. Yeah, it, it speaks to one of the real peculiarities of the Mitzrayim story, which is that you would imagine that after all these years of slavery, when Paro gets up in the middle of the night to release them, they would be out of there like a jack-in-the-box. But they're not, right? We're told that they were not able to hesitate. It seems like they wanted to hesitate. And then, of course, the word that is used is right? 
את העם, and also, ותחזק מצרים על העם למהר לשלחם מן הארץ. They are being expelled from Egypt. I, I think that there is another story that coheres with this, which is the story of Avram in Egypt, way back in Bereshit Parakid Bet, and he also meets a very... Uh, problematic situation morally, one that impacts on his family negatively. Remember, Sarai is taken to the house of the king. And after Paro finds out, he expels Avram from Egypt with the same words, right? The word is vayishalchu, right? They send him out. And he tells him, kach valeich, you know, basically get out of here, right? And and we see it, and we see it in, in the story of Lot in Stone as well. Lot goes to Stone. It's a place of evil. He himself is impacted negatively by the by that evil stone of course is like Eretz Mitzrayim in terms of its prosperity in terms of its lushness in terms of its success but and the fact that 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 you know it's an immoral place doesn't make it easy for Lot to leave and Lot is the one who hesitates right and he has to be grabbed and pulled out of stone and again there's I think there's a, a a larger theme that that you know that we're being exposed to here which is how difficult it is to leave a place of prosperity even when you know it's not a good place for you even when you know it's not the right place for you even when you're the one who's not necessarily benefiting from that prosperity that's the part that really perplexes me the idea that someone can be comfortable in a place they've lived in for hundreds of years and even though there's impending war not want to run away I get yeah. that from a psychological perspective but it's the fact that they were they were low in the totem pole, right? And that that we ended off on a very sour note. That makes it interesting for me. That still in their in their memory, they remember Egypt as a place that had that had real benefits to it. That somehow by once they're outside of it and they've left the the difficulty and the suffering, that 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 still is what has a hold on them. So yeah. I think that that's a really I don't know, a really interesting piece about what we have here. I think it speaks to a, another very important broad theme as well, which is that the fact that Israel keeps looking back at Mitzrayim throughout their period in the desert, and as you said, part of it, of course, is because they're in the desert at this point, and it's not, you know, it's a contrast to the land of Egypt. But I think one of the things that they're supposed to be doing is turning their back on Egypt, recognizing that for all of its prosperity, they shouldn't be looking longingly back to Egypt. And that's the Eshet Lot message, Mm. right? Don't look back. If you look back, you'll be part of the past. You'll be part of the, the, the world that God has determined, that God has slated for destruction. So, you know, the same way that Mrs. Lot becomes this pillar of salt and becomes part of the the, the destruction of Stone. So Am Yisrael in that first generation, because of the fact that they keep looking back to Egypt over and over and over, they remain in the desert. They become absorbed into the sands of the desert. They basically become a pillar of salt. Wow. Right? So there's, like that. there's really something here that I think is a very uh, broad lesson and theme that we that we take from this this difficulty in taking Egypt out of them, even after they've been told, leave it. This is not a place that God, uh, that God sanctions, that God wants to continue in any fashion. And if I can connect it back to last week's episode about the way that we sort of mold the memory of Egypt, I think very much 
God is saying, I need you to separate from there and not be nostalgic for it because I am going to weave the memory of Egypt deep into our consciousness, but I want it to be a very particular prism. I want it to be a prism of helping the weak. I want it to be a prism of knowing what it means to suffer, but I don't want it to be an idealization of a civilization of prosperity. That's the piece that God wants us to separate from. There are other pieces we want to take with us and keep with us forever in our hearts and mention three times a day. But other pieces God says, I want you to separate from and never be part of again. Yeah. Well, I think part of the piece of what we're leaving, what we're meant to take with us is what not to do, right? Don't treat others like you were treated in Egypt, right? Uh, You know, there's some remarkable psukim that tell us, you know, uh, how to treat others. And remember, because you were a ger, you were a stranger in Egypt. There's even a pasuk, I think it's Shemot Perakaf Gimel, that says, vidatem et nefesh Hager, mm-hmm. I love that that phraseology. You know the soul of the stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger. So take with you that negative experience and use it to build something better, to build something, you know, moral. So, you know, the piece that we've we've sort of gone into at this moment really connects also to a bigger question, which is why at the foundation of our our moments of foundation as a people, does it have to start with suffering? And this question really goes already back to Brit Ben Tarim when Hashem speaks to Avraham there. And you sort of think, uh, why? Why do, why do we have to be strangers in a land that's not our own and be there for hundreds of years? Why, why is that the way that this nation has to be formed? Now, I don't know, maybe it's a too large of a question and sort of gets into the quote-unquote mind of God, but I'm also curious about that, meaning is it, again, we know that a certain element of the suffering is there so that we acquire traits of goodness. And, and there's, there, un, unfortunately, a life that has some challenge, as we know as, as adult humans, breeds deeper, better parts of ourselves. And I'm curious also if you have any other thoughts about that, about why? Why did we have to start off like this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the best answer is the answer that it really weaves into our DNA concern for the other. And that we already said. Uh, The Midrashim are very concerned with this. And they talk about who sinned, right? In other words, in the backdrop of Am Yisrael's story, who sinned in order to, you know, require this kind of purification process. I think one sense that we have is that Sefer Bereshit is a book that does need correction. There's certainly, let's say, for example, in terms of like relationships between brothers and even which sisters, we right? We talked about, about that. For a long, long right, time. which we just spoke <laughs> yeah. about for a long time. And one of the things that the Midrash says is that the first set of brothers who are really getting along are the ones in Egypt, whether it's Ephraim Menashe or Moshe and Aaron more specifically. And the idea is, is that sometimes when you're in a situation where you feel, let's say, embattled, right? Um, and there's an external danger. So it creates a certain kind of internal bonding. And that sets in motion. I mean, that's not a very positive way of setting things in motion, but it sets in motion a certain sense of unity, of togetherness. The other thing that I would mention is the core habarzel, right? So that Mitzrayim is often referred to throughout the Tanakh as a core habarzel, this iron furnace. And there's a sense that by putting Am Yisrael as if they're this, you know, metal substance through this iron furnace, you create something which is stronger, 
purer, more durable, something that can endure many things. Of course, that is of certainly the the history of Am Yisrael. One of the big questions about Am Yisrael is how we were able to maintain our sense of self throughout so many persecutions, and and that certainly seems to be the fact that our foundation is in this um, iron furnace is something which I think gives us a certain amount of strength. Again, I still think the best answer is the first answer, which is that we really are created on a backdrop of suffering, which is designed to create empathy and a, a kind of society that is built in empathy, that is you know really rooted in it. I guess the only other piece I would add to that before we move on to talking about the plagues is that for all of us listening, to think to moments of our lives where they were where it was at its hardest, I think that many of us would agree that those were real turning points in our life, meaning they were moments that pushed us. We would never have chosen it, but they pushed us to really be introspective. They pushed us to appreciate things. And and my last so there's nothing we could do. A good, happy, simple life is a wonderful thing, but it seems to not be able to produce the kind of national depth that God calls upon his people to possess. On that note, I really want us to move into the plagues, the bulk of which we really have in this week's Parsha. And the plagues themselves have possibly multiple functions, both for the Egyptians and for the Israelites, who for the most part witness, but also suffer in some of them. So I'm curious if you could speak to that point about the about what functions the, the plagues themselves have. Yeah. Well, the first thing that we have to say is is that clearly 10 plagues are not necessary for God to take Amisrael out of Egypt, right? So we'll sort of debunk that. If God wanted to take Amisrael out of Egypt, he could have just taken them out in one plague. And there are many Midrashim that actually open with that very point, right? Does God really need 10 plagues to take Amisrael out of Egypt? And, you know, there are also certain patterns in the plagues, which suggest that this story is coming to teach us something that we can kind of discern within the patterns. Uh, so I'll say a couple things that I think that is going on here. First, first of all, I think that the plagues certainly are punitive. There's a sense of, uh, and, and you see it really throughout rabbinic literature, right? This idea of midah keneged midah, right? Measure for measure. Why are we turning the Egyptians' Nile into blood? Well, I mean, there's a pretty obvious conclusion to that because they threw the Jewish boy babies into the Nile, the Israelite boy babies more accurately, into the Nile. And it's more like a consequence even than a punishment, right? By turning the Nile into blood, you're actually showing the Egyptians the consequences of their own behavior, right? And each of the plagues has been treated by different rabbinic sources as um, something which is an appropriate plague in light of the behavior of the Egyptians. Some of the answers are more of a stretch. But in general, that whole approach suggests that uh, it, it is important before God take Amisrael out of Egypt to also properly 
uh, repay the evildoers for their evil, right? By the same token that we don't want a world of Sadiq Varalo, a world in which good people suffer, we also don't want a world of Rasha Vatovlo, a world in which bad people prosper. I mean, you know, we have the Nuremberg trials that, you know, serve as, let's say, our century's example of that. You need to put things right before you can move past something. So I think that's the first point of the plagues. And in that way, it's a little bit almost like a catharsis for the people themselves that suffered at the hands of these Egyptians. So that's the punitive dimension to this. What other dimensions are there to the plagues? Well, certainly there's a theological component as well. And that point is made twice in an explicit pasuk where God says, I'm going to make judgments with the gods of Egypt. And one of the things that we know about Egypt, because we know a great deal about ancient Egypt, is that they have this you know, incredibly rich pantheon of gods. And uh, some of their more powerful gods actually seem to be eviscerated in these plagues. So for example, I mean, I guess the best example um, is the plague of Choshech, right? We'll go all the way to next week's Parsha, right? The plague of darkness, where one of the most well-known gods in Egypt's pantheon of gods is Ra, the sun god. And, um, you know, by, by turning the world into three days of darkness, there's a statement that's being made here of only God controls the sun, right? There is no independent um, power to the sun as the Egyptians believed, right? There was a god of the Nile whose name actually was Happy. <laughs> and, you know, the idea that God can come to the Nile and say, I'm turning the Nile into blood and Happy can't say or do anything about it is also an important step in proclaiming this idea of there's only God, right? Of course, the story starts out with this sense of Paro saying, I don't know who that God is, right? Lo yadati et Hashem. Mi Hashem asher bekolo. Who is that God that I should listen to him? So the theology that underlies the plagues may be designed to show Paro, the Egyptians, the Israelites who've been living in Egypt for a long time, that there is only one power in the world, and that power exists above all of the powers that Egypt believes in, all of the different gods in the Egypt pantheon. And, and there's been an attempt, and I think a fairly successful attempt. Again, I think you know there's always uh, stronger arguments and weaker arguments, but to really look at each of the plagues and s- explain why that plague specifically gets rid of another perception of a godlike power in Egypt. The description very much recalls a lot of scholarship that surrounds the creation of the world as well, which I'm not going to be the first to connect between the exodus from Egypt and the creation of the world, but specifically that dimension of the way that the the plagues unfold, the way that the creation of the world unfolds in Perak Aleph is very much to counter, to counter other, in that case, ancient Near Eastern beliefs and here uh, ancient Egypt, Egyptian beliefs. Uh, just to take one example, right? One, one of the big examples is the Taninim, are these big sort of sea monster creatures that it's very odd that they're sort of mentioned by name in the beginning of the creation story. And you can take Nechum Sarna as one example, but many others who write about this, where God wants it to be really clear that unlike the other ancient Near Eastern traditions that speak about the way the world is created, God here is the one who created everything from from nothing. And so that also has an educational 
aspect to it, an educational slash theological aspect of saying, I want to make sure that we all are on similar grounds. Now, what's interesting is that at this point in history, we need to reestablish what we theoretically established at the creation of the world, or at least when we read the beginning of Breshit. It's almost as if, certainly as readers, we, we sort of need a refresh. We opened up Breshit and remembered that the whole world was created by God in a step-by-step process. He even recreated the world after he destroyed it in the flood, and then it happens again. And as you're describing it, I'm thinking about that in my mind, of this idea of that these these policies or these theolo- this theology of God is the one who is the mightiest, it still is taking time to sort of root itself in, in the world, in the ancient world that certainly they're living in, that, that it's another central function of how the plagues really play out in the Egyptian story. That something about this experience of spending hundreds of years among the civilization has a little bit kind of like wiped out an awareness that the patriarchs were able to acquire after, you know, a number of generations of having a close relationship with an intimate God that we need to sort of refresh on a national level. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that, first of all, I think that that's a very important point and especially the sense that uh, the story of the Makot is connected to the story of creation. In it, It's true in a different way as well. But it relates to what you're saying, which is that the creation story, which obviously no one was there to witness it, but we Correct. read about it, yes. is designed to show us that the world has a purpose. The world is created for a particular purpose. I think the Mitzrayim story is one of the uncreation stories, right? So you mentioned the Mabul, you mentioned the flood as another uncreation story. But really, I think the story of the Makot of Egypt is almost the undoing of Briata Olam, of creation of the world, within Egypt proper. So it's almost as if we're saying to Egypt, you received leadership, right? You are this great civilization. You could have led the world to its proper role in, in, in recognizing the purpose of the creation of the world, you didn't do so. So now we're destroying everything. Shamaim and Maim, Afar, Adama, Behema, Adam, and now we're going to plunge you in primordial darkness and turn out the lights. And then we're going to press restart. And the restart is Am Yisrael. That's why the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim starts out in last week's parsha with Uvnei Yisrael Paru Vayishritzu Vayirbu Vayatzmu Bimod Meod. Right? Am Yisrael is multiplying. That's a Bereshit Aleph yep. description. Mm-hmm. So there's almost this recreation of the world, uncreation of Egypt, and it's all for the purpose of saying to them, "You didn't get it." Right? You didn't understand the whole point of creating the world is not so you should create this pantheon of gods that ultimately is really about self-worship, mm-hmm. but rather that you should, you know, kind of minimize your own sense of self, at least in the ultimate purpose of recognizing that God is the supreme and exclusive power in the world. The piece that I think I want us to to spend a little bit more time on before we end today's episode is this idea of of knowledge of God, okay? About the Gediyat Hashem. It's interesting because the the parsha actually starts with this in an interesting kind of way. Mamash in the beginning, in the first psukim of the parsha, 
God says to Moshe, he says, Veira el Avraham el Yitzchak vel Yaakov be'el Shaddai ushmi Hashem yutkevavkei lo nodati lahem. Okay, he says that I, I met the patriarchs, but I appeared with the name Kel Shaddai, okay, but I did not reveal myself, so to speak, I'm giving a very, very loose translation because a lot of ways to understand this pasuk, but I did not reveal myself with the name of yutkevavkei. Now, this, this pasuk needs its own podcast episode because the name Yudkevavke appears in the book of, of Breshit. It doesn't mean that that name doesn't appear, but there seems to be certain attributes of God that God is saying the Avot didn't actually experience that yet, but I'm actually going to reveal myself in this world in a different way. I'll give one common explanation that's mentioned by a number of the commentators, which is that what the Avot experienced was the world of God's promises, but they don't experience yet the world of God's fulfillment. And the Yudke Vavke is the fulfillment of God's promises in this world. So they may have known the name on a technical level, but that experience of how God functions to deliver on his promises is something that they didn't yet experience. That's one explanation that's given by a number of commentators. But I guess what I want to ask you is about this idea of knowledge of God. What is God trying to uh, trying to accomplish here. I remember years ago, my eldest daughter, who was then younger, had asked me this question. We were learning these parashiot, and she said, you know, why is God so obsessed with everyone knowing his name? I mean, why is it not enough if just Am Yisrael knows who he is? And I think that that's a great question, meaning it is what, what is our ultimate goal here in, yeah. in terms of the awareness of God in the world? Yeah, wow, you just said a lot of ideas. And I'm just... <laughs> Okay. I'm just going to unpack uh, in one particular direction, which is I think that this is really a good way to end the podcast because I think ultimately that's really what the 10 plagues are about. They're about Yediat Hashem. But you said something else when you brought up your daughter, which is that Yediat Hashem is not just for Am Yisrael, it's also for the world at large. And what's interesting is, is at the beginning of this Parsha, when God tells Moshe, or when God tells Moshe to tell the people, right, that he's going to bring Shfatim Gedolim on Mitzrayim, he says it twice, and twice he explains why, right? The first time is, is really in Perk Vav, the continuation of the passage that you were reading, where in Pasuk Vav, God says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, Bishfatim Gdolim. And then in Pasuk Zayin, he says, Vidatem the reason I'm going to bring all these Shvatim Gdolim, all these great judgments, these 10 different plagues, is that so that you should know that I am God who is taking you out of Egypt. What's interesting is that in Perak Zion, God speaks again to Moshe. And again, he tells him in Pasuk Dalet, I'm going to take out my people from Mitzrayim with these great judgments. But look at what he says in Pasuk Hey, V'yadu Mitzrayim Kiani Hashem. Mitzrayim here having a universal connotation. The, the, the play that narrative actually has one goal. The goal is Yediat Hashem, the knowledge of God, right? The world has lost its knowledge of God, right? We talked about that a little bit before with the sense that we've lost the sense of Briat HaOlam. And so God is manifesting himself in this story and kind of coming from every direction, right? It's the opposite of the pantheon of gods in Egypt. Egypt ascribes independent power over different areas of life to different gods. Well, God comes from every direction and says, 
I'm here and I'm there and I'm in the water and I'm in the sky and I'm in every aspect of your life. And the message that is being uh, wielded is directed both at Am Yisrael and at Mitzrayim. And the question remains, I think this is really the, the, the last question that remains here is, why do they need two different messages? Why isn't it enough to get one message? And here I'm going to look carefully at these psukim, because in Perak Zion, God says, Right? I'm going to take them out with these 10 plagues, and then they are going to know that I'm God. The plagues themselves lend themselves to this kind of superficial knowledge of God in the world, okay? But when it comes to Am Yisrael, there's an extra few steps before Am Yisrael will gain the kind of knowledge of God that God wants from them. Look at what happens in Pasuk Vav. God says, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and these great judgments. There are going to be two more steps before you will know that I am God. First of all, I'm going to take you to me as a nation, and then I am going to be for you as a God. And what some of the Parshanim Par seem to say, that's right, mm-hmm. that's right. The Parshanim seem to suggest here that this takes us to the end of Shemot, because what God wants from Am Yisrael is a whole lot more than he wants from the world. He wants from the world basic knowledge, basic knowledge that there is one God, right? And what he wants from Am Yisrael is an ongoing relationship, not just a general sense that God is God, but a sense that God is there with them in their everyday lives. And that requires some more steps. That requires, I will take you to me as a people, and then, and I will be for you as a nation. And that occurs only after Am Yisrael build the Mishkan, a place where God rests his Shechina amongst them. And I'm going to read to you two psukim from Shemot Perek Kaftet, which is almost the end of the Mishkan uh, section, where God says, V'shachanti betoch b'nei Yisrael, I will dwell amongst b'nei Yisrael, v'ayiti lahem l'elohim, and I will be for them as a God, v'yadu ki ani Hashem Elohim, asher hotzeti otam me'eretz mitzrayim, lishochni b'tocham. And then they will know that I am God who took them out of Egypt in order to dwell amongst them. That's the difference between the Yediat Hashem that God wants from the nations and the Yediat Hashem that God wants from Am Yisrael who are meant to know not just this general sense of knowledge of God, but the sense of God who is dwelling amongst amongst them. And to do that, they have to build the Mishkan and to be serving God daily and to be engaged in this daily experience of really connecting with God. I need to breathe on that one, and I think that everyone listening needs to breathe as they think about that. But the thing that also comes up for me is that this is God's plan for the Jewish people, but the world at large has shown that it doesn't want to end with the Yediyat Hashem either, meaning the development of other religions 
And again, I'm opening up a can of worms here that we're not going to be able to deal with today in this episode. But the development of other religions that are sort of the daughter religions of, of Yahadut shows that for many other populations, it also wasn't enough just to have Yediyat Hashem, meaning they also wanted a more ongoing relationship that was going to be a more consistent presence in their life. And so while the Torah is for us and for sort of the formula, both the history and the and the prescription of how our relationship with God should look, this is something that is is really that many are thirsty for. They're thirsty for a relationship that's constantly developing and a present part of their lives. So it's interesting that the Torah says, well, in terms of my expectation for the world at large, I'm using the Egyptians as our metaphor for the world at large, that, that it's Yediyat Hashem and I'm not demanding anything else. But it's interesting that history has shown that that there really is a desire for something that's much more than that. And while their prescription doesn't have to come or isn't going to come from the Torah, it's going to come from other texts and other traditions that they also, many, again, billions of people around the world, also have a real thirst for that kind of intimate relationship with God. So I think that that's interesting that the way that the Torah presents it is two different relationships. And I think it's also interesting to see how the world has responded to, to those offerings, how much we've taken up the baton of having this intimate relationship with God in different ways throughout history, and how much the worlds at large have sometimes wanted more than, let's say, the Torah you know, prescribed for them at this point in history. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, El, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you, Yosefa. It was great as always. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.